3: It's time for American troops to come home.
4: There is no military path to uh, victory for the Taliban. There must be a peaceful and a negotiated settlement for the uh, political crisis in Afghanistan. And uh, I believe that that can happen. I don't believe that uh, the Taliban are guaranteed the kind of victory that you sometimes uh, read about.
5: Gunfire rings through the streets of Herat, Afghanistan's third biggest city now reported to be under Taliban control.
2: Afghanistan's president, Ashraf Ghani, has gone. He's left the country. We're getting
4: new images of the truly desperate, desperate
5: evacuation from Afghanistan. Of course, this date was not a surprise. It'd been agreed, it was a deal. Um, It's been known for over a year and a half. Why did you go on holiday? Did you take your eye off the ball?
4: We've known for a long time that this was the way things were going. Some people won't get back. Some people won't get back and um, we will have
6: to uh, do our best in third countries to process those people.
7: The soundtrack of a geopolitical disaster, the fall of Kabul on Sunday, August the 15th, 2021, and the return to power of the Taliban 20 years after they were ousted in the wake of nine I'm Matt Dancona and this is the second episode of my report on the 11 days in August, when the Islamic fundamentalist force swept into the capital of Afghanistan, President Ashraf Ghani fled the city, and Kabul International Airport became the scene of a heart-rending human crush as thousands of foreign nationals and Afghans sought immediate escape from, in many cases, mortal danger. We've seen how ill-prepared the British government was for the speed of the Taliban return, most of the key senior figures being on holiday, including the Prime Minister and Dominic Raab, the Foreign Secretary. And, while the government flailed, a group of horrified ex-Army MPs teamed up with NGO activists, intelligence operatives and military allies on the ground in Kabul to organise an unofficial evacuation network. This group is really central to the story of what happened in these 11 days. MPs such as Tom Tugendhat, the Chair of the Commons Foreign Affairs Select Committee, a Territorial Army Lieutenant Colonel who had served in Afghanistan and helped set up the government in Helmand Province, Johnny Mercer, former veterans minister and commando captain, and Tobias Elwood, a captain in the Royal Green Jackets. Not quite a government within a government. They were still having to do work that, by rights, ought to have been getting done through official channels, but all too often just wasn't. (laughs) On the evening of Monday, August the 16th, they and many others listened in shock as President Biden, impatient to get the U.S. out of Afghanistan once and for all, took aim at the Afghan forces for giving in.
3: American troops cannot and should not be fighting in a war and dying in a war that Afghan forces are not willing to fight for themselves. We spent over a trillion dollars. We trained and equipped an Afghan military force with some 300,000 strong, incredibly well-equipped, a force larger in size than the militaries of many of our NATO allies. We gave them every tool they could need. We paid their salaries, provided for the maintenance of their air force, something the Taliban doesn't have. Taliban does not have an air force. We provided close air support. We gave them every chance to determine their own future. we could not provide them was the will to fight for that future.
7: President Biden's statement only deepened the anxieties of those in this network of soldier MPs and their supporters. It was crystal clear that the Americans were not going to do much to help or to be flexible. So what about the British strategy? On Tuesday, August the 17th, the UK announced that it would take 20,000 refugees from Afghanistan in addition to British nationals and those evacuated under the Arab Scheme launched in April. Here's the Foreign Secretary promising a warm welcome.
8: We're looking at this very closely, I spoke to uh, the Home Secretary about this yesterday and the Prime Minister, Um, we'll be looking at a bespoke uh, arrangement, we're a big-hearted nation um, and uh, we've always, uh, as I know from my own uh, history, as Pretty knows from hers, always been a country that's provided safe haven um, for those fleeing persecution.
7: Naturally this was a whole lot better than nothing, but being spread across five years the scheme was also nowhere near equal to the challenge. Already, there was tension between Ben Wallace's Ministry of Defence, which wanted to get as many people out as possible, and Priti Patel's Home Office, which was by now programmed to the default setting of keeping them out. In Priti Patel's circle, there were mutterings about the risk of, quote, doing a Merkel, a reference to Angela Merkel's decision in 2015 to open the door to hundreds of thousands of Syrian refugees and the political problems it caused the German Chancellor. There was also the question of Priti Patel's brand as an aspiring Tory leader. As one Conservative MP put it to me, it's hard to shift your position from mobilising the Royal Navy against refugees in dinghies in the Channel to saying to thousands and thousands of Afghans, come on in. By this point then, the unofficial network of MP veterans, activists, intelligence sources and journalists was working round the clock in a DIY effort that was both remarkable a hastily constructed arc to get people out, and a standing reproach to the official structures which just weren't getting the job done. To bring some sort of order to this 21st century underground railroad, there was a series of Excel spreadsheets shared among the key players, but most of the heavy lifting was down to hard work on the phone. Everything depended upon the arbitrary factor of personal contacts rather than anything close to a system. So, for instance, those seeking to evacuate 50 members of the Afghan women's football team sought a direct line to Priti Patel via a friendly member of the House of Lords. Number 10 denied that Carrie Johnson, a well-known animal lover, was behind the U-turn decision to allow a special airlift of stranded cats and dogs in the care of Penn Farthing, a former British soldier who had set up the Nawzad animal shelter in Afghanistan. But the fact that this story was so widely believed The idea that the Prime Minister's wife had intervened in this way showed how ramshackle and personal the process was, much too dependent upon contacts and connections. What fate lay in store for the vast majority of Afghans facing danger who didn't have such powerful patrons back in London? One of the MPs involved in the day-to-day struggle to get people out described to me holding two mobiles simultaneously. On one line, a friendly soldier or official at Kabul airport And on the other, a potential evacuee in the crowd, pressed up against a fence, desperately trying to draw attention to themselves. So I'd be saying into one phone, hang on a minute, stay where you are. And then into the other, can you see a girl in a pink dress on a man's shoulders? He's wearing a red jacket, probably to your left, can you see them? And then back into the other, for God's sake, stay still. In some cases, the imperative was not simply humanitarian. Using exit routes other than the airport, the network also managed to exfiltrate key intelligence assets who, if they had been captured, would have been tortured by the Taliban until they gave up the full details of every agent and informer on the UK government's books, some of whom are providing intelligence to this very day. Impressive as these efforts were, they were the opposite of systematic and hardly what you'd expect of a supposedly great nation presently holding the presidency of the G7, a lead member of NATO with a permanent seat on the UN Security Council. You can understand why those who were involved, a few dozen dedicated individuals, look back on these days in August with a mixture of pride, because they did their best, and of shame, because their country didn't step up to the plate. Back in mid-August, however, there were still plenty of people in the political class looking for a reason to explain, or to rationalise, or at least diminish the horror of what they were seeing on their screens. In particular, it became almost commonplace for a while to claim that the Taliban had undergone some sort of ill-defined modernisation, transformed into so-called Taliban 2-0, and that the new regime would be nothing like its predecessor. Just as ISIS had mastered modern media techniques, so the Taliban were now spinning away to Western journalists for all they were worth, alleging that the days of murder, misogyny and brutality were not coming back. The Chief of Defence Staff, Sir Nick Carter, surprised many with the generosity he displayed towards the Taliban in an interview with Sky's Kay Burley.
9: I think you have to be very careful using the word enemy. Um, I think people need to understand who the Taliban actually are. And of course what they are, a disparate collection of tribespeople. As President Karzai put it to me only yesterday, they're country boys. Uh, And the plain fact is that they happen to live by a code of honor and a standard, which has been their standard for many, many years. It's called Pashtun Wali. It has honor at the heart of what they do. They are bound together by a common purpose, which is they don't like corrupt governance. They don't like governance that is self-serving. And they want an Afghanistan that is inclusive for all.
7: In November, Carter would claim to MPs that he had made these particular remarks for a specific reason, namely that he did not want to endanger British troops and diplomats or potential Afghan evacuees on the ground in Kabul. But even in this session with the Defence Select Committee, Carter remained bafflingly optimistic that everything would be all right in the new Afghanistan.
6: Do you really stand by that? Do you think, if we look back in 2026, that Afghanistan will be a much better place than it is in 2021?
9: Would you go on holiday to Vietnam?
6: Would I go on holiday to Vietnam now? Yeah. Well, I'm only just about allowed to go on holiday to the United States, sir. so I think, mm-hmm. I'll, I think I'll go to Las
2: Vegas first before I go to Saigon.
9: Okay, but would you go to holiday on holiday to Vietnam?
2: I'm not sure I would. Okay. I think the point you're making is that Vietnam, after the Vietnam War, is somewhere where you could go to. Yes. The trouble is with Afghanistan, if I can just pick this thread up, yeah. is that the music hasn't stopped. You could oh. see a Kurdistan-esque... Uh, enclave developing north of the Hindu Kush. The Uzbeks and Tazaks have never been run by the Pashtuns. And that's the concern that we have
7: as to where this actually then goes. This suggested, at best, a private view about the likely fate of the Taliban, that they would quickly be succeeded by a modern pluralist government, or at worst, a serious naivety about the jihadi's intentions for the country they had recently taken over. Late on the night of Tuesday, August the 17th, Boris Johnson finally got his courtesy call from President Biden that he'd been chasing for the better part of 36 hours. According to reports of the conversation, the two heads of government talked about the need for the global community to come together to prevent a humanitarian crisis in Afghanistan. Well, yes, it would have been odd if they'd said anything different, wouldn't it? According to one senior source, now the call was pretty ho-hum, platitudinous. I think Boris had expected Biden at least to say, ''You OK, hun?'' But he didn't even get that. We were on the Oval Office call sheet, had our allotted time, and that was that. So to Wednesday August the 18th and the debate held by Parliament specially recalled to assess the crisis. It's often said that the House of Commons has been reduced to outbursts of punch-and-judy shouting followed by long hours of irrelevant argument by a handful of MPs over obscure technicalities, that it has no real democratic energy. But that has not always been so. The Norway debate of May 1940 led to the replacement of Neville Chamberlain by Winston Churchill. The Suez debates of 1956 sent shockwaves through the British body politic and the nation's sense of itself. More recently, The electrifying debate on the eve of the Iraq War on March 18, 2003 captured the divisiveness of the invasion plan and sowed the seeds of Tony Blair's isolation in years to come as the Allied strategy unravelled. The August debate on the Afghan crisis was in the same league, a moment of national reflection, anger, sadness and recognition that things had changed. And not surprisingly perhaps, it is an essential part of this story which has at its heart the deep malaise that afflicts a governing class when a nation's decline becomes undeniable, the embarrassment and shame which that triggers, and the rationalisations to which those in power will resort, something, anything, to maintain the pretense that, as bad as things look, the country in question is still as mighty and honourable a force on the global stage as ever. For Boris Johnson, the key in the chamber was to look bigger than he actually was. To walk tall, even as his geopolitical presence shrank visibly.
4: Uh, my Honorable friend makes a, an excellent point, Mr. Speaker, and that's why uh, the UK has uh, chaired the Security Council of the uh, of, of the UN and asked to put a motion together with our French friends uh, to get the world to focus on the humanitarian needs of of Afghanistan. And we'll be doing the same thing in all in, in NATO, in uh, in the G7 and the other bodies in which we have uh, a leadership role. And we want to we want all these countries to step up as he rightly says, Mr Speaker, and focus on the most vulnerable in what will be formidably difficult circumstances. And then again. As president of the G7, the UK will work to unite the international community behind a clear plan for dealing with this regime in a unified and concerted way. Over the last three days, I've spoken with the NATO and UN Secretary General, with President Biden, with Chancellor Merkel, with President Macron and Prime Minister Khan. We are clear and we have agreed that it would be a mistake for any country to recognise any new regime in Kabul prematurely or bilaterally. Instead, those countries that care about Afghanistan's future should work towards common conditions about the conduct of the new regime before deciding,
7: together, whether to recognise it and on what terms. His point being, We are the very centre of things. Global Britain is one of the planet's hubs of power. I am still world king. But this was a risky claim to make, for it gave Labour leader Keir Starmer an opportunity to ask what, precisely, the PM had done with all this supposed international clout.
6: Mr Speaker, the lack of planning is unforgivable. And the Prime Minister bears a heavy responsibility. Mr. Speaker, he mutters today. He was in a position to lead, but he didn't. Britain Britain holds a seat at the United Nations Security Council. We're a key player within NATO. We're chair of the G7. Every one of these platforms could and should have been used to prepare for the withdrawal of forces, to rally international support behind a plan to stabilise Afghanistan through the process and keep us safe. But what did the... Mr Speaker, did the Prime Minister use those platforms in those 18 months to prepare? No, he didn't.
7: More embarrassing for Boris Johnson was the ferocity and accuracy with which Theresa May, whose premiership he had destroyed in 2019, weighed in to attack her nemesis. And of
5: course what we've seen from the scenes in Afghanistan is that it hasn't been all right on the night. So I say, there are many in Afghanistan who fear not just that their lives will be irrevocably changed for the worse, but who fear for their lives. Numbered among them will be women, women who embrace freedom, embrace the right to education, to work and to participate in the political process. My right honourable friend the Prime Minister was right to make the education of girls a key aim of his administration. But in Afghanistan, that will now be swept away. Those girls who have been educated will have no opportunity to use that education. The Taliban proclaimed that women will be allowed to work and girls will be allowed to go to school. But this will be under Islamic law. Or rather under their interpretation of Islamic law. Okay, well, am I right, I if, and we, on that point. if I may just and we have seen before what that means for the lives of women and girls. Are you ready?
7: And Theresa May added, what about the UK's own national security?
5: But it isn't just about the impact of the people on Afghanistan that must concern us. We must be deeply concerned about the possible impact here in the UK. The aim of our involvement in Afghanistan was to ensure that it could not be used as a haven for terrorists. Terrorists who could train, plot and encourage and tax here in the UK. Al-Qaeda has not gone away. Daesh may have lost their ground in Syria, but these terrorist groups remain and they have spawned others. We will not defeat them until we have defeated the ideology which feeds their extremism. Daesh,
7: by the way, is another name for ISIS. As the former prime minister twisted the knife, other conservatives expressed undisguised fury with Joe Biden. Here's Tom Tugendhat, chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee, who had been enraged by the US president's scorn for the Afghan army, addressing the question of Britain's relationship with its allies. That connection links us also to our European partners, to our European
1: neighbors, and to our international friends. And so it is with great sadness that I now criticise one of them. Because I was never prouder than when I was decorated by the 82nd Airborne after the capture of Musakala. It was a huge privilege, a huge privilege to be recognised by such an extraordinary unit in combat. To see their commander-in-chief call into question the courage of men I fought with, to claim that they ran shameful those who have never fought for the colors they fly should be
7: careful about criticizing those who have yeah. tobias elwood chair of the defense select committee was also highly critical of biden now i was born in the united states i'm a proud dual national i passionate about the transatlantic security
2: alliance And prior to declaring his candidacy, I worked directly with uh, with President Biden on veterans mental health issues. He was the keynote speaker at a veterans reception here in the House of Commons as my guest. So it gives me no joy to criticize the president and say the decision to withdraw, which he inherited, but then chose to endorse, was absolutely the wrong call. Yes, two decades is a long time. It's been testing chapter for Afghanistan. So the US election promise to return troops was obviously a popular one, but it was a false
7: narrative. And here's another former conservative leader, Ian Duncan Smith on Biden's criticism of Afghan forces.
4: It is no question, it is an infamous statement to make. Uh, These men and women had lost their lives in trying to uphold what we had brought to Afghanistan and we should be proud of them. And I do say to the American president, even though the government is perhaps reluctant to say this and even the opposition leadership, I say to the American president you have no right to use excuses and base them on people who have lost their lives and done so bravely the withdrawal of the air support was critical at that moment the moment that went, the Taliban got a green light and they knew they were going to go in and these Afghan forces could not be supported
7: that was a critical decision it was done in a hurry and it was wrong to put this in perspective Duncan Smith Another former army officer is a lifelong passionate Atlanticist who offered Tony Blair what amounted to a bipartisan deal during the Iraq war and was in telephone contact with Vice President Dick Cheney during that crisis. And here's Jeremy Hunt, the man beaten by Boris Johnson to the Tory leadership in 2019 and a former foreign secretary.
8: President Biden said this week that... His only vital national interest in Afghanistan was to prevent a terrorist attack. Even if that is the case, both he and President Trump should be deeply ashamed. And I say this with great sadness, because their actions have returned Afghanistan to the very government that harbored the 9-11 bombers.
7: Marc Francois, a leading light of the Tory right, and former lieutenant in the Royal Anglian Regiment, was even more forthright. I'm terribly sorry, as an Atlanticist all my life, that
6: President Biden's deeply isolationist speech on Monday was extremely worrying. If the midterm results in the United States are more important than the security and freedom of the free world, then we'd better work out pretty quickly what global Britain means, because it seems global America just fell off its horse and died.
7: And listen to the fury of Bob Seely, Conservative MP for the Isle of Wight, and a former captain who served in the Intelligence Corps, awarded the military MBE for his service in Iraq and Afghanistan. The collapse happened because a truly dreadful US president, Donald Trump, who was probably in hock to the Russians, dealt with the Taliban behind the Afghan government's back. A shocking betrayal. Joe Biden, who admires Kennedy, we had some great quotes from Kennedy earlier, could have
6: changed things. He has chosen not to, and he has opened the United States, Europe,
7: India, many allies throughout the world to considerable terrorist risks, from the two and a half to 4,000 jihadi nutjobs who are currently being released, pardon my French, from Bagram, from Kandahar and from Kabul. And when when they have stopped slaughtering our friends, when they have stopped beheading a few key women journalists, they will turn their attention to us. This was an anti-terrorist operation, and we have walked away from a successful anti-terrorist operation after 20 years. And sooner or later, we will reap the rewards. Why include so many of these statements of disapproval? Because they were so striking and ideologically out of character for ardent Tories. Remember, this was absolutely not the reflexive anti-Americanism of the left. It was the deep despair of lifelong conservative Atlanticists who felt a genuine sense of betrayal by the US President and the sudden loneliness that follows a breakup, in this case on a geopolitical scale. Part of that loneliness was a sense of shame. Tobias Elwood expressed this emotion thus. Since so with utter disbelief seeing us make such an operational
2: and strategic blunder by retreating at this time, a decision that's already triggering a humanitarian disaster a migrant crisis not seen since the Second World War, and a cultural change in rights to women, and once again, turning Afghanistan into a breeding ground for terrorism. I'm sorry there's no vote here today,
7: because I believe the government would not have the support of the House. Johnny Mercer, meanwhile, gave voice to the impact that the withdrawal was having upon veterans, who were surely wondering whether their sacrifice had been worth it. We're not trained to lose, and
9: we're not trained For ministers to in a way choose choose to be defeated by the Taliban. Was it all for nothing? Of course it wasn't for nothing okay and we have to get away from this narrative you know for a period of time whether we like it or not for a period of time okay Afghans the average age in Afghanistan 18 years old they will have experienced a freedom and privileges that we enjoy here and no one will ever take that away from them and that's incredibly important and what are we here to do if it's not to be good honourable people and fight for the oppressed, keep our families safe and live to a higher calling. And you did this over many years in some of the hardest conditions against as dark an enemy as this nation has ever faced. We often looked to our forefathers for inspiration. You emulated them, you did them proud, not in scale, but in the same amphitheatre. And you can be forever proud of what you did when the nation called. You played your role. You cannot control what is happening now. Remember that. What folk like me saw you do, the courage, the sacrifice, the humanity, it will never die. And it has defined us as human beings. You did that. Nobody will ever take that away. I will never forget you. And every day the sun comes up, I will make sure this place and this country never forgets you and your sacrifice on the altar of this nation's continuing freedom.
7: And, for Boris Johnson and his treatment of veterans, only anger.
9: But I must say to the House with a heavy heart, the Prime Minister has consistently failed to honour what he said he would do when he was trying to become Prime Minister. The Prime Minister must not wriggle out of his commitments on this issue.
7: And here is Tom Tugendhat again recalling a particular horror from his time in the war zone. It is the image of a man whose name
1: I never knew. Carrying a child who had died hours earlier. Carrying this child into our firebase and begging for help. Now there was nothing we could do. It was over. Because Mr. Speaker, this is what defeat looks like. It's when you no longer have the choice of how to help. This doesn't need to be defeat.
7: But at the moment, damn well feels like it. What is no less striking about this debate is how many MPs of all parties had already been contacted by Afghans in desperate straits. This is Seema Malhotra, Labour MP for Felton and Heston.
5: Why is it that young men cling to the side of a US plane in the hope of escape and fall to their death? Because they know that otherwise the Taliban would be coming for them. And, Madam Deputy Speaker, the terrifying situation for women at the forefront of progress for women and young girls... I have heard directly from the relative of a 16-year-old girl in Kabul, who last week was awaiting the equivalent of her GCSE results and a possible scholarship. Her words yesterday, if the Taliban come for me, I'm ready to hang myself.
7: The debate lasted from 9.38 a.m. till 5 p.m. on August the 18th. In total, MPs used the word must 237 times and the word should 132. But for all the declarations of what ought to have happened, Or ought now to be done to make amends. The overwhelming sense was of the elected representatives of a supposedly mighty nation-state staring into the abyss of impotence and growing irrelevance. Certainly the debate was historic though for all the wrong reasons. It reduced the Commons to a crucible of anger, sadness and powerlessness. What was meant to be a rallying cry often sounded more like a cry for help. On the evening of the 18th, I contacted a few of those who had spoken out, mainly on the Tory side. There was a sense of catharsis, things that festered had finally been said in the most public of spaces, and there was also the faintest glimmer of hope that Boris Johnson's government might, for once, suspend its usual contempt for Parliament, take heed of what had been said and raise its game accordingly. In fact, precisely the opposite happened.
1: down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing.
2: Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Have to get 30, 30, I bet you get 30, maybe get 20, 20, 20, I bet you get, 20, 20 I bet you get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at
1: slash switch.
0: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full turns at mintmobile.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile ups.
7: By Thursday August 19th it was clear that only four days after the Taliban had entered Kabul the blame game in Whitehall was already well underway. At precisely the moment that the key departments in the evacuation strategy ought to have sworn truce and focused like a laser on the fiendishly complex business of extracting the maximum number of people before the August 31st deadline, a brutal briefing battle was already well underway and like Bullingdon club boys drunkenly choosing who they were going to push down a hill in a -a portaloo, the most senior members of the Johnson government had decided that Dominic Raab was going to be the fool guy. Top of the charge sheet of course was Raab's decision to stay on holiday in Crete, never mind that the PM had at the very least not ordered his Foreign Secretary to come home. That was not the top line of the spinning against Dominic Raab. The top line was that he had been AWOL when he should have been on the bridge which was absolutely true. On August 17th, he had told Sky News that had he known what was about to happen, he would not have gone.
8: But look, in retrospect, of course I wouldn't have gone on holiday if I'd have known that had been the case. Equally, after um, 18 months and two years of a very uh, gruelling, demanding schedule, I think it's right that people in those positions try and take some leave. But we're always ready, I'm always ready uh, to come back. And of course, the key point that I was making is, even when I was away, frankly, I wouldn't have gone away if I'd have known that. I was constantly uh, handling and managing meetings uh, talking to f- foreign counterparts Understood. and uh, because of technology, of course, able to engage in every one of the Cobra meetings.
7: But this was nowhere near enough to satisfy the desire for a political blood sacrifice and, more to the point, a distraction that would push the images of Kabul from the front pages, at least for a day. On Saturday, August the 21st, the main news item in The Times bore the headline Dominic Raab stayed on holiday for two days after he was called back, with the subdeck Foreign Secretary nobbled Johnson for permission to remain in Crete. At this point Dominic Raab's parliamentary allies, yes he has a few, knew he was toast. We urged him to hang on and we knew that Boris wouldn't sack him immediately because Boris doesn't do that. There were some unhelpful references doing the rounds about Lord Carrington resigning honourably after the Falklands in 1982 and why wasn't Dom doing the decent thing. Anyway, There was very little doubt that after the Times piece he was for the chop or at least demotion at the next reshuffle. This duly followed on September 15th when the Prime Minister moved Raab to the Ministry of Justice installing Liz Truss as the new Foreign Secretary. It had been a classic, if shameful, example of the famous dead cat technique used by the legendary Tory strategist Linton Crosby Boris Johnson's campaign manager in the 2008 and 2012 mayoral elections, according to which the best way to divert attention from a damaging newsline was to leak a more sensational story that would divert the media pack. In this case, the dead cat was called Dominic. All pretty low-rent spin-doctoring, of course, and especially shabby given the humanitarian crisis that was actually unfolding by the hour in Kabul. The holiday story was standard populist fare, But the more serious charge against Dominic Raab was one that got to the heart of the systemic breakdown of government in the UK revealed by the Kabul crisis. Why had the Foreign Secretary, and for that matter the Prime Minister, remained so relatively sanguine during July when Defence Secretary Ben Wallace and the network of soldier politicians were already so anxious? The answer relates to the quality of intelligence reaching the government and more subtly how it was being interpreted. On the question of quality, As the Afghan government's grip on the country loosened, and as the territories that it truly controlled shrunk steadily, the quality of human intelligence getting back to the UK government and being sifted by the Joint Intelligence Committee was declining. As one Foreign Office source puts it, Afghanistan was never about cyber warfare or signal intelligence, it was about human assets and the incredibly dangerous business of getting information from them. As the Taliban's power grew, Assets were going off-stream or even switching sides. There were never two absolutely distinct sides, the Taliban versus the Ghani government. That's not how tribal village society works. Today's asset can melt away into the darkness or even put on a Taliban uniform and start working for the other team. If you're very lucky, you've got a double agent, but the chances of that in a crisis like this are few and far between. Here's Ben Wallace making a similar point before the Defence Select Committee on October 26th. One thing that is missed in the, obviously, the debate
6: about was the intelligence wrong and why did we get surprised by speed, and I think the lessons are always in history that as regimes or countries or governments collapse, actually your intelligence reduces, so your certainty slides because your sources, your networks, your people are either leaving the country, your military footprint is shrinking. The
7: other question is how you interpret what intelligence you do receive. In the same committee hearing, Ben Wallace noted that since the publication in 2016 of the Chilcot report on the Iraq war, intelligence briefings had understandably become more cautious. So, so what I mean is, look, um,
6: often intelligence is there to be, it's it, 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 with total honor desperate to try and be neutral you know, and not, not to be leading. Because one of the Iraq things was, was the intelligence leading, like leading a witness, was it leading you into making wrong assumptions? And so they try and do an assessment that are very, very clear and stark and caveated to the point that, you know, there is no inaccuracy and no room for getting a mistake. That's important. That's why they are there to inform us. But it doesn't mean that someone like me has let off the judgment. My, my, my job is to take those things, read them. In my view have enough knowledge behind what created that intelligence report and indeed the history or the knowledge of the political environment to then add to that my judgment and say whatever if you follow an intelligence assessment like it's an option paper mm. i think you will find yourself in the wrong place sometimes because ultimately just
7: like a, a police officer on the ground or a soldier in the end has to make the decision where he's going to cross the river what was the defense secretary really saying that he read the reports with understanding and the others, mainly by implication Dominic Raab, did not. Appearing before the Foreign Affairs Select Committee on September the 1st, the Foreign Secretary, for his part, looked back and claimed that he'd been in line with cross-government thinking all along in believing that the Taliban would not prevail as quickly as they did.
8: My point is this. The central assessment that we were operating to, um, and it was certainly backed up uh, by both the JIC uh, and the military, is that the likely Most likely, the central proposition was that, given the troop withdrawal by the end of uh, August, you would see a a steady deterioration from that point, uh, and that it was unlikely Kabul would fall uh, uh, this year. Uh, That was the central assessment, and of course, with all the usual caveats that you will be familiar with, not quite, said the committee's
7: chairman, Tom Tugendhart, who was growing increasingly frustrated by the Foreign Secretary's answers.
1: Your principal risk report of the 22nd of July 2021 read uh, on Afghanistan peace talks are stalled and US NATO withdrawal is resulting in rapid Taliban advances. This could lead to fall of cities, collapse of security forces, Taliban return to power, mass displacement, and significant humanitarian need. The embassy may need to close if security deteriorates. This was on the 22nd of July. How did your actions change after that
8: report? I'm sorry, the, the source of that? It's your principal risk report. Yeah, well as I said of course we uh, are very mindful of that. So as I said, um, if you look at um, high-risk embassies, it, from the point of view of the embassy safety as opposed to the evacuation, I think those two things are important to distinguish. We have a standard uh, evacuation process for high-risk embassies like Kabul, um, obviously that's reviewed um, and has to evolve and adapt to the conditions which is uh, why you're, um, uh, what you said is, is uh, timely and of course we keep it under review.
7: This was at best a slippery answer by the Foreign Secretary. He knew full well that the risk report had been a flashing red light on the dashboard. The Taliban are going to win and soon. But had chosen to see it as only a narrowly defined commentary upon embassy safety, when it was very much more than that. In October, further evidence came to light under freedom of information rules that make Dominic Raab's claims untenable. This recently released series of telegrams from Sir Bristow, the British ambassador to Afghanistan, and his deputy Alex Pinfield, shows that HMG's most senior diplomats were unambiguous about the direction of travel as early as June. On the 28th of that month, Bristow wrote that the Taliban would wait "...until it believes international military withdrawal is irreversible before escalating its campaign, which would be the case once US air power was withdrawn." On July 2nd, President Biden met that condition by withdrawing the US military from Bagram Air Base. On August 2nd, Bristow cabled London "...the gloves are off. We are entering a new dangerous phase of the conflict." The Taliban, he warned, were on the brink of taking cities, if that happens. Bristow wrote, The impact on already fragile political unity, military and public confidence and sentiment will be significant. Kabul's status as a relatively safe zone, he said, was very unlikely to last indefinitely, as the Taliban manoeuvred into a position where they could exert maximum pressure on the city when they see fit to do so. Why did the Foreign Secretary choose to ignore or to downplay this intelligence. Because it had nothing to offer the official narrative that Boris Johnson had publicly endorsed in July, namely that the Taliban were not going to win by military means and that they were not going to get their hands on power any time soon, which was plain wrong. As one veteran of national security and diplomacy put it to me, the government completely failed to see what was plain as a pike staff by early July or to understand how much this would matter to those in the UK who had put their lives on the line, and to people around the world who were watching us fail in real time. The insouciance was despicable like nothing I've ever seen. And it didn't have to be this way. The French after all had got their people out in June and July thus avoiding completely the often terrifying crush of August. The British government's refusal to acknowledge what was coming and plan appropriately was undoubtedly a grotesque failure of political leadership, worse by far than the absence on holiday of the PM and his foreign secretary. It was close to the alternative facts mindset of Donald Trump's regime, and it is one of the most serious indictments to date of Boris Johnson's government and its tenuous relationship with the truth. Let us return then to those crucial 11 days in August, and yet another indignity for number 10. On Sunday the 22nd, the US president held a press conference in the Roosevelt Room in which he flat out denied that America's international partners had raised any queries about his strategy.
3: I have seen no question of our credibility from our allies around the world. I've spoken with our NATO allies. We've spoken with NATO allies, the, the Secretary of State. Our National Security Advisor has been in contact with his counterparts throughout the world and our allies, as has the General — Our excuse me, I keep calling them a General, but my Secretary of Defense. The fact of the matter is, I have not seen that. As a matter of fact, the exact opposite I've got. This in
7: spite of the fact that the Parliament of America's closest ally had only four days before resounded with bitter criticism of Biden and his strategy. As one Downing Street source put it, now I know what it feels like to be gaslit by the most powerful man on earth. The Prime Minister had one last throw of the dice planned, which was to seek an extension of the August 31st deadline. But on Monday 23rd of August, a Taliban spokesman ruled that out.
3: If the... Uh, uh, extend behind uh, 31st August, uh, that is a, a clear violation, one thing. Secondly, about consequences, it is up to our leadership what, uh, how to proceed and how, what kind of decision they, they take. That decision will be implemented.
7: This accorded with what UK diplomats and their protection officers were picking up on the ground in Kabul. In the first few days after the Taliban's arrival on August 15th, the Islamist fighters had been reasonably cooperative, even when they found themselves facing the very same paras with whom they'd once fought to the death. The objective at the start was to encourage the evacuation and not get in the way. But jihadis are not famous for their patience and by the 23rd, the mood was hardening. As one military source puts it, around the hotel, you could see it in their faces. It was very much fuck off time which is what they did. The diplomats and soldiers could be proud of what they had achieved in near-impossible circumstances, the evacuation by the end of the month of 15,000 people, three times the original target envisaged in the evacuation plan, Operation Pitting. On Tuesday the 24th, with much fanfare in the press, the Prime Minister chaired a Zoom call of G7 leaders, also attended by the UN Secretary-General Antonio Guterres and NATO Chief Jens Stoltenberg. But like the G7 summit at Carbis Bay in June, the call had a purely performative function. It made it possible for the Prime Minister to claim just that he had done something that he had at least technically led by hosting an on-screen meeting. According to one involved in the call, it was really just a set of platitudes and pleasantries, dressed up as bold intentions, pretty depressing. It felt like a digital sewers moment, to be honest. Thus, did the 11 days in August end Since then, as we have seen, select committees have begun their investigations, there are calls so far rejected for an in-depth independent inquiry, and the network of dedicated MPs and activists continues its remorseless work to get people out of Afghanistan. Unofficially, government sources estimate that there are 300 people left in the country who need to be urgently extracted. The network of soldier politicians estimates that the real figure is closer to 3,000 and probably much higher. At the time of recording, the Afghan citizen resettlement scheme promised for the 20,000 refugees has yet to open its doors. This has done nothing to quash suspicions that Priti Patel would be quite happy for arriving Afghans to slip into the regular asylum system, for which the Home Office has much less direct responsibility. Whatever the Taliban claims to the contrary in its media releases, women are being bought and sold once again in Afghanistan. Girls' secondary schools remain closed. Women aid activists are denied the right to work, even as millions of Afghans face winter starvation and desperately need assistance. Women protesters are denounced as animals. How does the promised Taliban 2 look today? President Biden believes that he got away with it. The so-called Band-Aid strategy, ripping off what remained of US protection at great speed to get the whole thing over with quickly paid off to the extent that Biden has not suffered long-term political damage from Afghanistan. He has plenty of other things to worry about. Ditto Boris Johnson. It was a bumpy fortnight for the PM, but the plight of Afghanistan does not crop up in conservative focus groups. The government's real problems right now have more to do with sleaze, energy prices, and inflation. So according to the debased rules of modern populist politics, the two heads of government got away with it. But did they really? Afghanistan is once more a potential sanctuary for terrorists. The West has shown itself to lack stamina and principle, a boost to the ambitions of China, Russia and other authoritarian regimes constantly watching to see how much they can get away with. And for the first time in my adult life, Britain cannot possibly be said to be punching above its weight. Preparing this newscast, I was reminded of two literary passages. The first from John le Carre's Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, in which the Soviet mole Bill Hayden tells spy hunter George Smiley that he had gradually realised that, if England were out of the game, the price of fish would not be altered by a farthing. Published in 1974, those words ring ever more true in late 2021. The second passage is from Kipling's great poem of 1901 on the Boer War, The Lesson. Let us admit it fairly, Kipling wrote, we have had no end of a lesson. It will do us no end of good. But have we? Will it? Call what happened in those 11 days in August a defeat. Or a withdrawal. Or a strategic retreat. Call it whatever you like. The impression Britain's actions gave to the world remains the same. And there is nothing good about it. Any way you cut it, we left a desperate nation to which we had promised a safe, democratic, and prosperous future in the hands of a gang of theocrats, fascists, and misogynists. We look weak, we are weak.
5: Thanks for listening to this episode. It was reported by Matt Dancona with research by Ellen Halliday and Nimo Omar. The mix was by Studio Klong with sound design by Tom Kinsella. The executive producer was Kerry Thomas. And if you'd like to listen to the Slow Newscast without ads or to get involved in more of our journalism, you can become a member of our newsroom. You just need to go to tortoisemedia.com forward slash friend and use my code BASHA50, that's B-A-S-I-A.